got an outline there. I want to speak about spiritual growth, particularly uh, in light of our AGM last week. We had uh, last Sunday afternoon the opportunity to gather and think about where we're going as a church. We had an opportunity to do some more formal, uh, to deal with some more formal matters around our finance and around uh, the constitution of the board that looks after uh, our finance and our property. And so I thought it helpful for us just to think on a spiritual level what those realities of our finance and budget, our building, what what they represent, what they serve. Because we live in a tricky time. We live in a tricky time to be a Christian. It can feel like being a Christian in our society today is like we're backing a losing team. Some of us have supported losing teams for many years, perhaps in rugby uh, league. But being a Christian feels like now we are backing a losing team. We had the same-sex marriage vote in November 2017, and for many Christians, for many of us here, it was a disappointing result in terms of where our culture is at. In the last month, we've seen the way in which our world perceives the church in the verdict of George Pell. At the end of last year, there was a lot of discussion in the media around religious freedom. Many Christians, rightfully, I think, feel like religious freedom is under threat. Scripture in schools has been under threat for some years now, but at the end of last year, uh, it wasn't only Scripture in schools that was under threat, but our church schools came uh, under threat in terms of their ability to employ who they would like to employ based on what the Word of God says. There are many issues around the sanctity of life that are discussed in our world, issues like abortion or euthanasia. As these are discussed, particularly in our state parliaments, it feels as though there's a movement away from what Christians would uphold as... Uh, the sanctity of life, respecting the unborn and the elderly and sick. It feels like we're losing to be a Christian. And we've come a long way. In, 1990, in, 1990, sorry, in 1966, the ANU conducted a study of spirituality in Australia. And it found in 1966 that 90% of Australians had been baptised. I'm not sure of what the statistic is today, but we've come a long way in over 50 years. And so it's hard to be a Christian in our world. And that, I think, means that it's hard to engage in the ministry of the gospel in our world, the ministry of the gospel which seems so opposed, a culture which seems so hostile to the things of God, hostile to biblical morality, hostile to the Bible, hostile to Jesus and hostile to Christians. In one sense, this is new, but in another sense, it's not new. Here you have a statement from an Anglican bishop, the Anglican Bishop of Adelaide. And I'll see if you, I'll read it out, and you see if you can guess the date where he made this statement. He says, 
Religion is not fashionable today. Men and women are none the worst thought if they do not go to church. Anyone want to guess where, uh, sorry, when that statement was made from an Anglican bishop who's observing that people aren't into religion much these days? Anyone want to guess? Graham? Earlier. Later. <laughs> we'll go for a third guess, somewhere between 1860s and 1960s. It was 1924. So in 1924, even back then, people were observing that our society was moving away from Christianity. Normally it is uh, pointed as a, as a significant trigger moment, uh, the mid-60s. But even back then, it was thought, at least by this Anglican bishop, that people were moving away from Christianity. And so that means that there's great challenges before us, great challenges before us as a church. But at the same time, I think there's great opportunities. Uh, This week on Tuesday, we had the opportunity to to gather a bunch of people from our church to think about a parenting seminar that we're going to run later on this year. And it was very interesting, some of the discussion around the opportunities that a parenting seminar provides. In fact, one lady who's part of our church, uh, just recently become part of our church, has been telling others down at Mortlake School about this course that we're running. Now, I know that we're running it, but I don't know exactly the date. But she's already telling people, and very interesting, her response uh, was that people were very interested because they're confused about parenting. And so as difficult as gospel ministry is today, there are also opportunities. There are also significant opportunities for the gospel. And so what I want to do with us this morning is to encourage us, to encourage us to see how God is at work and how God is at work um, throughout the ages. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, It was our reading uh, that Elaine gave us. If you want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is writing to this troubled church. He has this long relationship with the church in Corinth. It's not a perfect church by any means. It's a church that has caused him great tears. And in his second letter here in the book of 2 Corinthians, it seems as though his ministry, which has been long has been called into question. And it's been called into question not by those outside the church, it's been called into question by those inside the church there in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? It may well have been that Paul felt as he ministered to the church in Corinth, that he was losing, that he wasn't thriving, that things weren't going the way he wanted them to go, that he was, in, he was engaging in hostile territory. His rivals, it seems, had letters of recommendation, letters from the Jewish headquarters probably in Jerusalem, and these rivals which criticised Paul well, they, they seemed to conduct a ministry that was so effective, so flourishing. But for Paul, there wasn't a lot to show. 
he didn't have these letters because he says there in verse 2 he doesn't need them. Because he's saying here there's something about gospel ministry that, that can't quite be written down. That's not a referral from someone else. There's something about gospel ministry that's not obvious in our world. See, Paul doesn't need letters of recommendation because his ministry is written on the hearts of those he ministers to. The Corinthian church were very interested in the outward signs, in the expression of spirituality, but not particularly interested in the inward reality the matters of the heart. And that's where Paul points. He points to the heart. He points to spiritual realities there in verses 3 to 6 because Paul's competence for ministry wasn't in his natural ability. And that wasn't to say that he wasn't naturally a very able man. But his competence for ministry was found in the work of the Spirit. That work of the Spirit that came upon him in Acts chapter 9 as he was there persecuting that church, the church. The work of the Spirit that did a deep work and instant work in his heart that turned his life around. And that very Spirit that was at work in the first moments of Paul's Christian life here as he continues in a very hard period of Christian ministry is the same work of God now in his life. The spirit that converted him is also now the spirit that empowers him for ministry. Because the nature of gospel ministry is that it is always an interruption to our lives. Gospel ministry interrupts our lives, our selfishness, our rebellion our attention away from God and his work and his word. And this is how the nature of gospel ministry began in the first century. And this is how the nature of gospel ministry has continued throughout the ages. Gospel ministry is a spiritual work in the heart of men and women. And so that's why Christianity can't be reduced down to methods or ordinary human metrics because... Fundamentally, the work of the gospel is a supernatural reality, a reality of the spirit working deep inside. And you can't always see that. And perhaps we don't always notice it. Great theologian, B.B. Warfield, who was theologian at the very year he started at Princeton, the very year this church was built, 1887, he said this, He said, the religion of the Bible, Christianity, is frankly supernatural religion. It is meant that, according to God, has intervened extraordinarily in the course of the sinful world's development for the salvation of men who are otherwise lost. Warfield says that real Christianity is that spiritual intervention, the way in which the Spirit has come extraordinarily perhaps imperceivably, into the lives of men and women. So that's why I want to just give us five distinguishing marks of the work of God's Spirit. Uh, B. 
because um, as we gather, it's not always easy to see the work of God. It's very easy to see the work of our labours. I, I love seeing the progress of the building. Don't you? Each week, do you come with a sense of anticipation, wondering what they've done next? Perhaps it's the fence, you see it around there. It's the room, a bit more paint, um, a new door. It's great. It's encouraging, isn't it? It's far harder to see what we're fundamentally on about, the spiritual growth of men and women's lives. Uh, I came across this book this week by um, a man called Jonathan Edwards, and he lived in a time in the 18th century there was a lot of confusion about spiritual growth. He, came, he lived in a time where Christianity, earlier in his ministry, was on in decline, which is surprising uh, for us to think of times in which Christianity has been in decline before, but in the 18th century, uh, it was. And so there was confusion. There was confusion because Christianity had been in decline for some uh, length of time, but also there had been moments of new growth. And so people were really confused about what genuine spiritual growth looks like. And so you see in your outline, um, Edwards came up with five signs of spiritual growth. And I want to just take them very quickly in turn. We'll see how we go. Uh, But firstly, Edwards thought that the fundamental and orientating overarching concern when the Spirit of God was at work was when Jesus himself was esteemed. When people were consumed, not just with talk of Jesus, but the worship of Jesus at the centre of everything. Secondly, uh, Edwards thought that when the Spirit of God is at work, when there is spiritual growth, there is a spirit of repentance. This is, um, this is one of the points which is less obvious to us, I think. Uh, The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And we need to be very clear about this, that the fundamental problem of all humanity is not an unmet or unfelt need, but the unkept law of God. And so our primary disconnect is not between, as many people say, ourselves and our real selves or our best lives, The disconnect is not between ourselves and some version of ourselves. The fundamental disconnect is between us and God, the one who has made us, the one who saves us in the Lord Jesus. And so as we engage in a ministry in this church that seeks to engage people with the gospel of the Lord Jesus, there will be opportunities for us to engage people's needs as we talk about a parenting course. There are people who have needs in parenting. But fundamentally, gospel ministry doesn't occur just by identifying a felt need and providing some program for them. Gospel ministry occurs when those who have that felt need realise that there's a bigger need, a bigger need to be confronted with their sin before God. And so people cannot be saved without us talking about both their need, their felt need, but also of their need of repentance before God, the reality 
of their sin because fundamentally Jesus is not just a satisfier of our desires before he is a satisfier of the wrath of God. And so we need to do both. We need to engage people. We need to engage them and love them in the moment that they are at. But we also need to connect that with the truth of who God is and the reality of sin. Thirdly, Edward said spiritual growth has a devotion to the word of God. Just for sake of time, I won't spend too much on this, but Edwards says that this is a fundamental reality. This is a fundamental reality because often the way we approach the Word of God is we, we come to the Word of God and we have concepts in our mind, things that we think are important, uh, an organising structure, an organising framework. And what we do so often is we see those sections of the Bible and we seek to make them fit that organising structure of our minds. But what Edward says is, when the Word of God is at the centre of our lives, the Word of God becomes the organising framework. It becomes our reality. It, in fact, establishes reality. How did God create the world? He created the very reality which we sit in by his Word. And so he creates spiritual reality for us to see what is important and unimportant by the word of God. Fourthly, he says that if the spirit is at work, there's an interest in theology and doctrine. Now this might be somewhat controversial, um, that a spiritual reality would have some interest in theology and doctrine. And this I think in one sense can be a dangerous sign if it's isolated, particularly from some of those other points as you cast your eye down there. Because an interest in theology and doctrine doesn't alone demonstrate spiritual growth because knowledge apart from grace simply puffs up and leads to pride and arrogance, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. But this doesn't make knowledge and the knowledge of God disposable. Because Jesus says God is spirit, and those who would worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so we must resist that. That way, too often, modern Christianity separates those two realities. Oh, they're the Bible Christians, and they're the spirit Christians. That's not the way the Bible conceives. The Bible conceives that those two realities go hand in hand, following Jesus operates in our hearts and in our minds. And it's not that we're to be, you know, spiritual know-it-alls. We're not talking about salvation by education or dry intellectualism. But Jesus himself says that our minds are an important part of who we are spiritually. He says, having a mind lovingly dedicated to God is actually a requirement of us. Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And so loving God with our minds is an important part of our spiritual growth. 
Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 reminds us that faith is not a leap in the dark. Paul tells Timothy to watch himself and his teaching. And so we must, we must have our minds challenged. We must have our minds grown. I know many of us have a wonderful intellect. God's gifted us with many, sorry, God's gifted many people here with tremendous intellect. And often that the intellect of our mind is, is given expression in our work. That's where it's stretched. And sometimes the danger is that our mind is so stretched in our work that our understanding of Christianity can become, well, reduced. I want to encourage you, if your mind is stretched in work, then you exercise your mind when it comes to the knowledge of God. There are deep and wonderful truths for us to behold of God, truths that, that God has given to us as a gift if we would seek and understand them, if we would know the scriptures, if we would hear what other Christians have said about the scriptures. This is a fundamental part of our spiritual growth. Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world. How? Well, you don't, you're not conformed to this world. You, instead, he says, you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. Fourthly, oh, sorry, fifthly, you see there that there is that the fifth sign of spiritual growth is evident love for God and neighbour. True spiritual growth comes when we are consumed by a love for God which expresses itself in a love for neighbour. 1 John 4, John writes, If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You see, the mark of a growing Christian is one whose love for God is increased and that expresses itself in a love for others. And so we need to be aware of this. We need to ask ourselves, is our love growing? Not do we have a love for God, do we have a love for others, but is our love of God growing? Is our love of others growing? Because this is the point that Paul makes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. He knows he's writing to a very different church than to the Corinthians. The Corinthians were a nightmare. The Thessalonians warmed his heart. But what does he write to them? He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, Brothers, we instruct you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living now, that is, after he's written this letter, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. See that final mark? It's a growing love of God. It's a growing love of neighbour. The Apostle Paul, a man who writes so beautifully to this letter, this letter to the church in Thessalonica, recognises that there's so much good going on in their lives. He praises God for that and then he instructs them that this would be ever-growing, that they would do this more and more. 
They're five uh, signs of spiritual growth. Five signs of spiritual growth that I pray that in our lives we might see. We might see an esteem, a love for Jesus himself, a spirit of repentance, a knowledge of our sin, a devotion to the word of God, an interest in theology, and a love for God and neighbour. And then if we have those five realities in our lives, then everything will be easy when it comes to ministry. That's what we're tempted to think. That's what I'm tempted to think. If, if we could just organise ourselves, our church, um, often the ministries that we're involved in, if we could just organise them correctly or in a better way, then ministry would be easy. Then the work of God would be so much more evident. I was at a conference this week, a conference on evangelism, very good, and they had a speaker from America, a man called Mark Dever, and he was outlining the change that he's seen in America, the change that's in Western cultures as society has moved away from Christianity. And he made this point, and it was so helpful to me. He said, theologically, recent cultural change has made our job 0% harder. Now, our world has changed significantly, more than my lifetime, and for many of you who are older, you've seen this, you've felt it, you see it in your grandchildren. But you hear what Dev is saying? He's saying it's made our job, in terms of Christian ministry, 0% harder. Why? That was a question that I came out from the conference. I was thinking, why, why, why is it not harder? And the answer came to me as I looked in Revelation 12, and this is where we'll finish. I just want to encourage us with this reality. If you want to flip to Revelation 12, and I just want to remind us of the spiritual superstructure that's behind our lives, a spiritual superstructure that we can't see, a spiritual reality that is present for us all, a spiritual reality that we need to be reminded of as we engage in ministry, because ministry can be hard. Ministry is hard. The work of the gospel in any church is hard work. And here's why. It's not because our culture has shifted away from Christianity. That's not fundamentally the reason. The reason, according to Revelation 12, is because the dragon attacks the woman and her child. Revelation chapter 12 is seen by many scholars as this central, important moment in the book of Revelation. Many of you know this pictorial expression of the gospel of Jesus, not just an expression of what will happen, but an expression of what is happening. And Revelation 12 helps us understand what is the reality within our lives, the world for which we live in. Chapter 12 sees a conflict in pictures, a red dragon, a red dragon who is frightfully powerful, attacking what would seem a vulnerable, pregnant woman. The dragon wants to devour the woman and devour the child once it is born. But that child is taken up to God and is placed in heaven and it feels quite chaotic, this chapter. It feels distressing as you read it. And then 
there's this voice that cuts through, cuts through that distress and that difficulty there in verse 10. And here it's a voice of the gospel. It's a voice of God's word establishing reality. It says there, I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation, the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers who accuses us before our God day and night has has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Hear what is the reality of gospel ministry? The reality of gospel ministry is that we do live in a world of spiritual conflict. We do live in a world for which the evil one has come down. And this evil one is filled with fury. And at every moment, his objective is to create such confusion, to draw out and suck hope, such that Christian people are reduced to despair. But he is so furious there in verse 12 because he knows his time is short. And his time is short because we read back in verse 11 that the blood of the Lamb has overcome him. The blood of the Lamb has provided a victory. And so his days of opposition to God's people, of opposition to the woman, the dragon as it attacks the woman, is given a limited time frame. And he will do all that he can to distract, to destroy, to create despair in the short time that he has. But the people of God who have been rescued by the blood, the blood of the Lamb, they are not to shrink back. They are not to despair. They are not to feel defeated. They are to speak. They are to speak the word of his testimony. They to speak the word of his victory in the face of opposition. And so, friends, can I encourage us, as we as a church think to engage in ministry, we engage in ministry not because it's hard in 2019, we engage in ministry because the blood of the Lamb has saved us, that the evil one has always been opposed to the purposes of God. It's always been hard in the nature of Christian ministry. And so our job, our job as Christian people now in this moment that God has given us is to not love ourselves or our lives. It's not to shrink back. It's not to shrink back, but it's to speak the word of his testimony, the word of the gospel that creates reality in our lives, in the life of our church, and in our wider world. Let's pray that God would give us the strength to do this. Amen. Please stand.